issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available.
That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased.
Good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be gathered with you here this morning. Um, for me, this might be like one of my favorite Sundays of the year, the this, this fourth Sunday of Advent, this time when everything is kind of leading up. The anticipation of Christmas is at a, an all-time high. Right? If you're like me, you did 90% of your Christmas shopping last week, and so like feeling real. And like, it just, I love this time to gather together, like a field by Christmas outside, um, and just the anticipation of that a, an all-time high. And so I'm just a joy to gather with you here this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the, the senior pastor here. We're glad that you're here with us. If you're visiting, is there anything you need to, or want to communicate with the church, myself, or with the church office, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out and drop it in the the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings. So yeah, we're just we're delighted that you're here with us. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that in your bulletin you received this morning, you'll see an envelope that says Christmas gift for missionaries. And so if you want to contribute to uh, a Christmas gift, you will send out the missionaries we support as a church. You can place any contributions in this envelope and put those in the the boxes on the back wall as well. Finally, after our service today, we will have our, our children's Christmas program, and so at 10.30, we'll get that started. So there'll be a little break between the end of the service and the start of the program, and so we'd invite you to head downstairs after the service, get a cup of coffee, fellowship together, and then come back here, be in here by 10.30 to watch that, that program. As we as we continue this morning in our time of worship, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the chance to, to gather as we've been walking through this Advent season and the anticipation builds of celebrating the birth of your Son, Thank you for all that that birth represents. Our, our hope, our salvation. Thank you for all that you've done for us in sending Jesus to live among us, to die in our place on the cross. I pray, God, for, for each of us here as we head into this last week before Christmas, before we celebrate the birth of your Son, would we find time in this week, and a week that can be busy for many of us, to, to reflect and to rejoice and to be amazed in a new way at what an incredible gift Jesus is. Father, I pray too for those of us gathered here or those in our community who this time of year is perhaps challenging because it brings fresh grief or fresh pain 
for those who are walking through hard times right now. Pray that they would find comfort and peace and hope in Jesus. That you would remind each of us, but especially those who are hurting, that because of Jesus, there is there is hope beyond our present trial. Pray that would be real in the hearts and minds of those who are hurting this morning. Father, as we continue to sing, as we celebrate Advent, as we come to your word this morning, would you be at work in the hearts and the minds of each person here to, to draw us closer to yourself? than we were when we walked in this morning, that you would conform us more into the image of Christ than we were when we walked in this morning. And that our, our singing and our fellowshipping and our time together would serve to bring you honor and glory and praise. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are celebrating the fourth and final Sunday of Advent by remembering that Jesus came into the world as the ultimate expression of God's love for each one of us. In 1 John 4 we read, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. These verses remind us that God showed us how much he loved us by sending his son into the world so that we can experience eternal life through him. Today we remember God's love for us by lighting the fourth candle of Advent. remind us how much God loves us and that because we have experienced the love of God, we are able to extend that love to people around us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for showing us your love for us by sending Jesus to the world so that we can experience eternal life. As we remember how much you love us this Christmas season, help us to share that love with others as well. Amen.
because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. that those words we just sang are true, that not only did Jesus come and live among us, but then he also went to the cross and he died for us to take our place to bear our sins and to give us his righteousness. Pray that as we, we rejoice in Christ this Christmas season, we, we would not forget The end of the story is not at Christmas, but at Easter and all that that represents. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever happened to like, find yourself perusing the, the tourism section of the website for Leadville, Colorado? Which, who doesn't, right? Thank you. One of the things you'll see listed as a tourist attraction in Leadville is this thing called the Matchless Mine. So the Matchless Mine was operated by a man named Horace Tabor. This is him here, good old Horace. So Horace grew up, he was a kind of a small-time prospector, and he grew from that small-time prospector into one of the wealthiest men in Colorado through a series of fortuitous breaks during Colorado's silver mining boom and from 1877 to 1879. He exploded in wealth during that time period. And then, as so many people do, he parlayed his wealth into social status and influence. He, he used his wealth to be, serve a stint as a U.S. senator. 
And then in 1883, he used his wealth to enchant and eventually marry a much younger, much more attractive woman named Baby Doe. I actually don't know what Baby Doe looked like, but he looked like that, so I assume she was more attractive. Right? <laughs> right, so the guests were invited to the wedding of Horace and Baby Doe with invitations made out of solid silver. One of the people who received one of those invitations was the sitting president at the time, Chester Arthur. Right? And he came. So he's a big deal. The president came to his wedding. Right? But then in 1893, ten years after his marriage to Baby Doe, something called the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was repealed, and it caused the silver market to crash. And with it, it financially ruined the, the Tabers. And they kind of financially ruined, and then Horace died six years later of appendicitis. And on his deathbed, he gave Baby Doe a final admonition. He said this, Have faith in the matchless mind. Never give it up. It will give you back all that I have lost. Right? So even as they had been financially ruined, he was confident that if she held on to this mind, eventually Silver would recover and they would get their, she would get their wealth back. So baby Doe obediently returned to the mind, the mind. And she spent the next 36 years of her life living destitute in a tool shed that belonged to the mind. Then 36 years later, in 1935, after a massive snowstorm, she was found dead in the shed, frozen to death. So, Merry Christmas. No, here's, here's the point. Right? I know it's a bleak story, but here's why I share it. Horace, and then later, Baby Doe, right? they placed all their hope in, in riches and in silver and in the matchless mine. Like, even when all seemed hopeless, right? after all their financial troubles and Horace's death, when all seemed lost, Baby Doe still refused to abandon her hope in the matchless mine. The point being, when, when Baby Doe found herself here, in this hopeless situation, her husband dead, the value of silver minimal, she placed her hope in the mine. But she placed her hope then in the wrong thing. The matchless mine had no power in itself to justify her hope. The matchless mine had no compassion for her. The matchless mine itself had made no promises that should have given her hope. Baby Doe had no reason to hope in the matchless mind, right? to believe that it would rescue her from her helpless situation. And she had placed her hope in the wrong thing. Now compare that to the state that Israel finds itself in in 2 Kings 13, where it will be this morning. The nation of Israel, likewise, finds itself in a, a seemingly hopeless situation. What we'll see in this passage this morning is that even when things seem hopeless, those who trust in God still have reason to hope. Hoping in silver may be futile, but hoping in God is never futile. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through 2 Kings 13, starting in verse 10, and look at three reasons, first of all, why Israel's situation seems hopeless. 
that they have three reasons for despair. And then after those three reasons for despair, we'll look at three reasons for them to still have hope even when things seem hopeless. Let's start looking at the first reason for despair in 2 Kings 13, looking at verses 10 and 11. We read this. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. So we see in these verses that Israel has a wicked king. We're told that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in that sense, Jehoash, who's the king of Israel during this time, is, is not unique. In fact, he's just like every other northern king, every other king that the northern kingdom of Israel has had since Israel split into a northern and a southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom, Judah, had, had mostly bad kings, but they had, they had a few good kings here and there. In fact, during the time that Jehoash reigns, they have a good king. They, they have Joash, who's being faithful to God down in Judah. But Israel, the northern kingdom, only ever has wicked kings, kings who do evil in the Lord's sight. So Jehoash is just another in a long line of wicked kings. And because they've had all these wicked kings, it's it reduced Israel to its lowest point. In fact, a few verses before this, we read that Israel's army was reduced to 50 charioteers, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. And that the king of Aram had killed the others, trampling them like dust under his feet. So Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is at a low point. The low point in its history till then. Their main enemy has been slowly picking away at Israel's military strength. It's been picking away at their territorial claims. And they're at a low point. So for the people in Israel who are, who are still faithful to God, this must have been incredibly disheartening. That they see their wicked kings and they see the people around them acting wickedly and they're seeing the consequences of that sin. It must have been so disheartening. Things are only getting worse and worse. And surely they must have thought that God's not going to do anything good for us when this wicked man is our king. He's wicked. But that's not the only reason that King Jehoash gave them to despair. Not only is he wicked, he's also half-hearted. And we see this in 2 Kings 13, 14 through 19. That now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So finally, right, it seems like that maybe desperation have pushed Jehoash to the point that he's going to consult Elisha. Finally, he's going to seek after God's will. So maybe this will be the turning point. Maybe things are finally looking up. Verse 15 said, Elisha said, Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. 
When he had taken it, Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Armenians at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. And by strike the ground here, I think he means like, like shoot more arrows into the ground. Right? Basically repeating the act that Elisha just helped him do previously. Right? So that first arrow, arrow was shot in the direction of Aphek. And Elisha then promised that Israel would completely defeat Aphek if the arrow was shot in that direction. And so now Elisha is telling Jehoash to repeat the same thing. And the implication being that every direction that you shoot an arrow, God will give you victory. Which is why verse 18 ends with the statement, and stopped. Like, like on the surface, like that seems like a pretty obvious statement. Right? Like it says he struck the ground three times. So obviously he stopped after that. Like, if I say, like, I punched my brother three times, I don't have to say that, and then I stopped. Like, you get the point that I stopped, right? But the author wants to drive home the point that Jehoash stopped. He shot three times and stopped. He could have kept shooting more, but he, he ceased shooting. And Elisha is not pleased. Verse 19 says, The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will only defeat it three times. If only Jehoash had kept firing arrows, God would have given Israel complete victory over Aram. But King Jehoash was half-hearted in his obedience. It doesn't tell us why he was half-hearted. Like maybe he didn't truly believe that God could do what he said he would do? Maybe he was just going through the motions. Maybe he was just lazy. But for whatever reason, he, he goes about this task that God gives him through Elisha half-heartedly. He only shoots three arrows and then stops instead of shooting enough to give Israel complete victory. And it's easy to read that and think, like, come on, Jehoash, like, what are you doing? Why are you being so half-hearted in your obedience? Why are you being so lukewarm in your zeal for God? Just shoot more arrows. But then, kind of the same way. Maybe you are too. I thought I was studying this passage this week. I came across a, a reflection from a pastor named Tony Marita. This reflection that he gave like, just convicted me and, and cut me to the soul. He's talking about Jehoash's half-hearted response, and he says this. Surely we wouldn't be tempted to conduct such half-hearted religion, would we? Managing sin instead of putting it to death. Having a half-hearted prayer life. Giving sporadically, if at all, to the mission witnessing inconsistently. And he said this, are you a three-strike Christian? 
Let me encourage you to fire every arrow you have. May God forgive us for our half-heartedness and give us a fresh passion today to trust his word and act on it. I don't know about you, but like for me, it's so easy to be half-hearted, to be lukewarm, to go through the motions, to make sure I look good outwardly, make sure everyone sees that I'm doing all the right Christian things. But in my heart, be more like Jehoash. Be half-hearted, to lack zeal, to have a half-hearted prayer life, to manage sin instead of putting it to death. It's so easy to be that for me. If that's you too, like, urge you to learn from this right, to, to, as Marita said, to fire every arrow you have and to seek God's forgiveness for our half-heartedness and our lukewarmness in the past. Like Jehoash's half-hearted behavior here is very reminiscent of the Israelites when they first entered the promised land. In fact, the book of Kings, right, and and the book of Kings was originally just one book, right? We call it First and Second Kings, but originally it's just one book. And that book starts out with a description of, of how the Israelites entered the promised land under Joshua. And they were driving out their enemies, they were winning victory, but then they, they grew half-hearted and, and lazy. They failed to completely drive God's enemies out of the land. Because of that, then sin crept in and they find themselves in the state that they're in now where they're worshiping false gods and not being obedient to God because they never drove out their enemies in the first place. God, people over and over and over again throughout the Bible fail to completely defeat their enemies. We're always prone to half-heartedness, to half-measures, to, to laziness. But then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is fully obedient. Jesus is never half-hearted. Because of that, Jesus is able to defeat our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. If nothing else, let the half-heartedness of Jehoash, let your own half-heartedness remind you that you need someone to win your battle for you, that you can't do it on your own. And that, that person is, is Jehoash. But Jehoash was half-hearted, and it was another reason for despair. We'll see the third reason for despair in, in the next verse. Verse 20 says this, Elisha died and was buried. Elisha was like, the most visible expression of God's presence with his people at this time. Right? And now he's dead. Like Most of Israel is disobedient. Most of Israel has nothing to do with God. And then there's Elisha who's been faithfully obeying him. And now even he is dead. So if we kind of zoom out for a minute, we see a bleak picture for God's people. The border of Israel has been continually shrinking. It's their political power in the region has been shrinking. Like, under a series of wicked, half-hearted kings like Jehoash, things are beginning worse and worse. And now Elisha, the great prophet, is dead. And things seem hopeless. 
maybe you are in a point in life, or you've been in a point in life where it seems like everything is conspiring against you, working against you. There are trials and there are difficulties and there's pain and there's suffering over and over again, and everything seems hopeless. That's you this morning, or you've been there before. Like the, the rest of this passage encourage us that even when things seem hopeless, for those who trust in God, there is reason for hope. And we see this starting in verse 20. That now Moabite raider used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. And at first, this seems like another reason for despair. Like, like Moabite raiders are, are coming into Israel with impunity. Like, Israel doesn't have the military might to defend its own borders, and the, the citizens of Israel are under, under constant threat, constant attack. And so those people, the people in this story, are, they're out burying a man. They're for sure be mourning, and they can't even mourn properly because all of a sudden these raiders show up. Their only course of action then is to, to run and hide. But they have to do something with this body first. It wouldn't do to leave it unburied, and so they just hurriedly throw it into Elisha's tomb. And apparently, Elisha's been dead for quite some time now because, like, we said when they threw the body in, it touched Elisha's bone. Right? The rest of him was gone, just the bones left. And you're just touching this. Elisha's bones, like the man comes back to life and he, he stands on his feet. And it's stories like this in the Bible, right, that can lead skeptics to say, you don't really believe that, do you? Like, this seems like nothing short of, of mystical magic, right? Some sort of mysticism, like just touch some old bones and the dead will, will rise. Like, surely you can't really believe that. And likewise, it's, it's stories like this in the Bible that have been used by various traditions over the years to, to justify a veneration of relics. People read a story like this and think, like, look at the power in Elisha's bones. Maybe if we had some physical object from some important figure in, in the Bible, then we can get that power for us, too. But this story... And it's not about mystical magic. But the power that raises this man from the dead is not in the bones themselves. The power that raises this man from the dead is God's power. It is God that raises this man from the dead. And if God has the power to even raise the dead, then we have reason to hope even when everything seems hopeless. And look, honestly, I can see where the skeptics are coming from. I find the idea of a physical resurrection of the dead hard to believe myself sometimes. It seems weird, it seems strange, like the logistics don't make sense in my head. It's one thing to believe that after we die, we all go on to a spiritual, eternal life with God in heaven. 
That seems easier to believe, but a, a physical resurrection, like bodies coming out of graves, like that seems harder to believe. That's important to see. Right? That this miracle, like all miracles, is, is meant to point us forward to a redeemed future. Miracles are used by God to show us what life will be like when at the end of time Jesus returns and he sets everything right, when he makes everything as it should be. This miracle is, is no different. It actually happened, and it happened to show us and show people God's power and to give us a foretaste of what the future will be like that awaits those who have placed their faith in Jesus. It's hard as it can be to believe sometimes. Like our, our hope of eternal life is not just that our souls will go to be with God in heaven when we die. The great hope that's offered to us in the Bible is that though we die, these physical bodies will one day be raised from the dead. They will be renewed, they will be perfected, but they'll still be physical bodies. And these physical bodies will live with God forever on a physical, renewed earth. As hard as that can be to believe sometimes, I find that much more appealing and amazing than the idea of living different bodies spiritually forever. God gave us body for a reason. He will give us perfected bodies in the future. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that it is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that we also will all be raised like Jesus. And he goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Meaning, right, that if we don't believe in a physical resurrection, not just for Jesus, but for all people, then our faith is futile. On the other hand, though, believing that, that God had the power to raise the dead should be a deep sort of hope for us. No matter how hard things may seem, no matter what trials you're enduring, no matter how tempted you may be to give in to despair, the power of God to raise the dead gives us a reason to hope. We see another reason in the next couple of verses. Hazael, king of Aram, opposed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. So again, not a good start. Like things seem bleak. But then we get some word that, that often turned darkness into light in the Bible. Verse 23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them, and had compassion, and showed concern for them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Like everything was going wrong. Everything seemed bleak. But God was gracious and had compassion and showed concerns for his people. So God's compassion is another reason that we can have hope when all seems hopeless. 
The king of Israel was wicked. The king of Aram was continually defeating and opposing Israel. Elisha was dead. The people of Israel were living in rebellion against God. But God still had compassion. And those words, but God, or in this case, but the Lord, are some of the best words in, in the Bible. So this morning I'm going to I'm preaching through 16 verses, and I'll preach for 35 minutes or so. A couple of weeks ago, my 35-minute sermon covered 38 verses. Like, I tended to preach from longer passages. Conversely, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous wealth physician-turned-pastor, once preached for over an hour on two words. The two words being, but God. And he was preaching specifically from the time when but God appeared in Ephesians 2, where we read this. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of, his, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, because of his love for us, made us alive together with Christ. Just like the Israelites in 2 Kings, we, we find ourselves in a seemingly hopeless situation. God demands that we be sinless to come into his presence. But we all sin. We are, in Paul's word, by nature, children of wrath. Because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath to fall on us. But God has compassion for us. He, he loves us. And so he shows us mercy and grace by sending Jesus to live a, a sinless life in our place. And then to go to the cross and on the cross to bear God's wrath on our behalf. So that when we believe in Him, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we can be made alive together with Christ and look forward to that future when our bodies will be raised and we will be with God on the new heavens and the new earth. And this morning, we, we lit the love candle for Advent. It reminds us that it's because of this great love that God had for us that God sent Jesus to earth to die in our place. In the first week of Advent, we lit the hope candle, which reminds us, as we've been saying all morning, that because Jesus came, we can have hope, even when things seem hopeless. We can have hope because through Jesus, God displayed his resurrection power. We can have hope because through Jesus, God displays His compassion to us. Look, if you're here this morning, you've never believed in Jesus, you've never trusted Jesus, you never asked Jesus to forgive you, you never asked for what He did on the cross to take your place, to bear God's wrath for you, God urge you to do that. Only in Jesus can we have this hope we've been talking about all morning. 
see a third reason for hope in, in the final two verses of today's passage. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazel, the towns he had, been take, he had taken in battle from his father Jehoaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. And just as God had promised, Jehoash won three battles in response to the three times that he shot arrows into the ground. Even though Jehoash was wicked, even though Jehoash was half-hearted, God was still faithful to his promise. We can have hope that despite our failures, despite our sins, despite our own half-heartedness, God is still faithful. Back in verse 23, we read that the reason God showed compassion to his people was because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had promised Abraham that he would one day make him into a great nation, that one day he would bless the whole earth through him. And he passed that promise on to Isaac and Jacob and then the people of Israel generally. Here's the incredible thing. That God makes that promise and then no amount of sin from Abraham's offspring will cause God to back out of that promise. The northern kingdom of Israel had, had turned its back on God from the very beginning. They worshipped false gods. They, they lived in sin. Yet because of his covenant with Abraham, the people were not destroyed. This would have been especially good news for the original audience of the book of Kings. This book was originally written while the Israelites were in exile. After Israel had been completely defeated, after the Assyrians had taken them off into exile, when seemingly the full consequences of their rebellion against God had come about, that's when they read this. And yet the author of Kings, knowing that situation, reminds the people that to this day, God has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Yes, he's taken the land from them. Yes, things are bleak, but God has been unwilling to totally destroy his people because of his covenant with Abraham. God was willing to forgive them, to, to show compassion to them if they would just call on him. And ultimately, God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham by, by sending Jesus, who is Abraham's offspring, to make anyone who trusts in him, no matter how sinful, a child of Abraham, and thereby bless the whole world through Abraham. Each of us, right, the child of Abraham, and we're living here across an ocean from Israel, and yet the world being blessed through God's presence in us because of what Jesus did for us. God keeping his promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through him. This whole situation should be hope for us. And maybe you feel like, man, I've sinned too badly, too much for God. I, I can't, that God can't save me. You don't know all the terrible things I've done. Like, my sin is too much. 
But Richard Sibbs, the, the great Puritan pastor, once said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And that's true no matter what sins you've committed, no matter what you've done in the past. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. To find hope in that. There is, no matter what sins you've committed, there is no reason to be hopeless because Jesus is ready and willing and eager to forgive. But for us who have trusted in Jesus to, to fully feel the, the joyous hope that is found in Jesus, we need to feel the weight of our sin first. We need to know that we are sinful. We need to know that we are without hope if we try to save ourselves in our own power. We need to know that we are not good enough, that God only saves sinners. We need to own our sin. And self-righteous people don't think they need God's forgiveness. Right, so it's this time of year when a seemingly all-knowing being gives gifts to those who are nice and cold to those who are naughty. And how you like, handle that topic in your family, with your kids, grandkids, whatever, like, that's up to you. I'm not going to tell you how to handle that, but here's my plea. Do not use this time of year, of all times, to teach works-based righteousness. Jesus came to offer grace as a free gift. A gift that couldn't be earned by being good. And I find it deeply ironic. A little bit concerning, right? That we use the holiday where we celebrate Jesus' birth to say, you better be good or there's fewer gifts for you. Like, that's anti-gospel. That the gospel is, you were naughty. Like you were worse than naughty. You were God's enemy. But God still loved you. God still offered you the gift of his grace and forgiveness and you've done nothing to deserve it. That's the gospel. Don't tarnish that with how you teach about Christmas. Don't use this holiday. Don't use the traditions around it to teach your kids or your grandkids the opposite. Teach them about the grace that's found in Jesus, not works-based righteousness. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless. He's the answer to all the reasons for despair we've seen in this passage. Jesus showed us that even though we, we sin like Jehoash, even though the world around us is, is full of sin, God continues to work. He doesn't write us off for our sin, but instead he sends Jesus to come and die for our sin and invite us to repent. Jesus shows us that even though we're half-hearted like Jehoash, we can still have hope because Jesus was perfectly obedient. He was perfectly righteous. He was never half-hearted. And through his death and his resurrection, we are offered Jesus' perfect righteousness in exchange for our sin and our self-righteousness. 
And finally, Jesus shows us that even though we are weak like Israel was during this time, even though we will eventually die like Elisha did, God's plan, God's purposes are not dependent on human strength. In fact, God delights to work through our weakness. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God, there it is again, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who have become for us wisdom from God. And that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It is because of God's strength, God's compassion, God's faithfulness displayed to us in the coming of Jesus that we can have hope. As we we leave here today, my, my hope, my prayer for each of us that no matter what trials you're going through, no matter what difficulties you're facing now or will face in the days ahead, you will find hope by trusting in Jesus. By trusting that God is powerful and God is compassionate and that God is faithful. That God has good purposes that he has promised to bring to pass. And because God has promised, you can be assured that they will come to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that when we were in our sin, when we wanted nothing to do with you, when we were your enemies, Jesus came for us. that you loved us so much that you would send Jesus to die that, so that through believing in him we can have eternal life. That through believing in Jesus our bodies will be raised and we will spend eternity with you in, a, in redeemed bodies on a redeemed earth worshiping you in a world where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more trials and no more death. When all things will be right and glorious. So Father, as we continue walking through this Advent season, as we look forward to celebrating the first coming of Jesus, 
you also remind us and give us hope in the fact that Jesus will come again, that there will be a second advent, a second coming. And when that day comes, all will be right. Our pain will be no more. We'll be with you forever. Father, no matter how hopeless things may seem for the people gathered here this morning, for people in our lives, would they find hope? Would we find hope? Because Jesus has already come once and he is coming again. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you, would you go this morning? Would you go finding hope in God's power, hope in God's compassion, and hope in God's faithfulness? You are dismissed.